gave me the nod back there that I'm on. So. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 7. Let's have a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of the Lord we have to study your word, Father, and pray, God, you help us to learn uh, more about you, more about Jesus, Lord, and more about how to live for you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I mentioned, I'm in Jeremiah, it doesn't look good. Last week I mentioned that, you know, there's a couple of outlooks, a couple of ways that we can study Romans, this section of Romans chapter 7. We can, a lot of people think, and I used to know, I used to believe that, you know, this is Paul's life. Then there's, could be Saul's life, which is, is quite feasible. And then I, I ran to a commentator. I didn't run into him. I studied him. And he, um, he and his cohorts, I guess you call his people that believe like he does, convinced me that this is talking about the, he called him a legal Jew. And that means a Jew that's trying to work their way, keep the law, and be justified. And that made more sense to me just the way I've studied it. It makes, all, it makes a lot of sense to me. And we talked about last week. I didn't bring last week's notes. Anybody have last week's notes? No, my, my wife writes notes. She ought to write mine sometimes. I don't get them all mixed up. If you want to see my notes, I write them, type them down, then I highlight and underline in red, and then I can't read them when I get up here. I'm saying, what did I mean by that? <laughs> or my cat walks across the pe- keyboard when I'm typing, and I say, what is that word? It's like one of those names in Leviticus or something, you know, you can't, can't even read. You know, a bunch of consonants and an equal sign and something else, a couple numbers, you know. What's that? Anyways, we, we left off there in, um, in chapter 7, verse 16. Let's start there then. Well, let's, let's start in verse number 15. For that which I do, I allow not, but what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. So that's the frustration of this person trying to keep the law and do right. Verse 16, if then I do consent that it is, uh, if I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. You can't read this section very fast. You'd be a bumbling idiot if you do. I mean, it's just, I would if I don't, I did if I do, and you know, it's really, it's really complicated. The revised version is... <laughs> about one verse. <laughs> if I'd quit being bad, I'd be better or something, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> so, if then I do that which I would not, I can send to the law that it is good. That word if, you can oftentimes substitute the word since. Since I do that which I would not, I can send unto the law that it is good. What's good? The thing that I do? No, the law. The law is good. That's what he's talking about here. So this is verse here is kind of an appeal to uh, our conscience as a witness. Your conscience as a witness. Did you know that? Yes. It goes everywhere you go. Can't get rid of it. But it may have a comment on some of the things you do or think, doesn't it? It's a witness. It's right there with you. You can try to lie about something. I wasn't there, but the conscience says, oh, yeah, you were there. And I saw you do this or whatever it was, you know. So our conscience as a witness that God's law is holy and good as affirmed in what Paul said in verse number 12 there, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So the law is good. The law is 
fine. There's nothing wrong with the law except we can't keep it. So when people violate God's law or transgress, we'll call it that, the inevitable feelings of guilt are sufficient evidence to us that the law is spiritual and good. We're comparing our actions with the law. That's how we know when we've broken the commandment or broken the law or transgressed the law because we compare our actions or our thoughts with what the law says. There wasn't a law there like way back when, then there was, there was no transgression. We studied that a while ago. Where there is no law, there's no transgression because there's nothing that says you can't do anything. People's conscience gets so seared with evil, though, that they have no conscience left. You know, the, the ends justifies the means. It doesn't matter what they think. It's what they want that they got to get. So that, that, that happens, and there's plenty of examples of that through history. Verse 17, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Using the conscience of our, our inner man or person to affirm the justice of the law, Paul raises a conflict here, which needs to be answered. Here we have a man in a state of rebellion against God. Oh, I'm not in rebellion against God. If you're not saved, guess what? You're in a state of rebellion against God until you get saved. Uh, Atheist. What does that mean? No God. I was raised agnostic. No knowledge. Didn't, didn't want to know about God. Atheism is no God. And one preacher told me, it's no God. It's no God I won't change. It's no God I won't get saved. No God I won't repent. No God I won't, you know. So that's what he's talking about here. We have this conflict here where we're in a state of rebellion and we're facing the sentence of what? Death. It's exactly right. And for this unhappy situation wherein we live, this verse says, the law is not to blame, the law is good. But it appears from this verse, I'm not to blame either. Why? Because it's sin that dwelleth in me. So the Conflict is, I agree with the law, and I disapprove of the sins that I do, but who's to blame? So Paul answers this question by, by stating that it's not my real self who does these evil things, but sin that dwelleth in me. He's going to talk about this for a couple verses. And it's evident that Paul's still talking about the same Jewish people, the good moral good friend type, good person, neighbor, Jew person, Jewish person that wants to do right, wants to do right. But he didn't have a way to do it. He's following the law. So Paul speaks of this kind of this, this contradiction. I believe the law that it's good and I still do wrong. So what, who's to blame? It's sin. So this person's under the law does not know Christ. And the Christian is under Christ and doesn't know the law. So we've got these two things here. The fact of an inward conflict is in every person. How many of you have ever had an inward conflict trying to decide if you should, should do something? Or if you should have done something. That's worse, isn't it? 
Because usually if, I, if you should not have done it, then you're, you know, First John 1, 9. God, I'm sorry, you know. But, so this, this, this inward man, this inward conflict is, is in us. And it, our conscience, this inner man, proves when we transgress the law. We know the law. We know what God expects from us. When we don't do it, then our conscience dials our number. Hey, guess what? And sometimes we're not sure. We waffle. We think about it. Should I do this? Should I do that? You've got to go to the Bible and see. Oh, my particular thing isn't in there. Sure it is. The principle's in there. If you've got questions about it, that's in there. If you've got questions about it, maybe you ought to say, eh, better not. You should question what you're going to do rather than question what you did. You get a chance to... You know what I mean? Amen. Not do it. But the inward conflict of the Christian, us, is extremely diminished from what a lost person experiences. And we have something that they don't have. We have 1 John 1.9. Look at 1 John 1.9 for a second. We have something that the Old Testament law didn't have. 1 John is right there. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive, Forgive us and cleanse us. What's he cleansing? What's he cleansing? What's he cleansing? Us. What's he cleansing? When the Old Testament sacrifice was there and you. you did a sacrifice, you killed the animal, or whatever it was you did, and your sins were forgiven or atoned for, and you walked away, what did you still have? Conscience. Conscience. You still had the guilt. That's right. And it couldn't take away the guilt. Amen. It says there in Hebrews, they go once a year and they do all this stuff here, but you walk away with that thing saying, boy, I have guilt about that. I know it's been atoned for by this sacrifice or this R-A-T right, but I still have it. It eats on me. 1 John 1, 9 cleanses me from that. The lost person doesn't have that. They struggle with that guilt. And that's what Paul's getting at here in these next few verses. They carry that around with them. The conflict that Paul's talking about is the misery of the man, woman, person, under the law. Paul was dealing here with the, this inward conflict that the Jew had, or the lost person has, trying to keep the law or do right or be good. And the Jew especially is trying to keep the law in, in, you know, uh, uh, the way it was, it was actually written or the way they perceived the law. But living it, they perceived the way it actually was. Perception-wise, it looks great. I could do this, but in real life, it's hard. Can't do it. The law was designed that way. You can't do it. God doesn't want every man to be justified by his works. He wants them to accept Christ as their Savior. So the law is perceived as good, but it's actually impossible to keep. Verse 18, For I know that in me, that is my, in my flesh, Dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, 
how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the will to do good, the intention, how many of you intend to do things? I've been on a diet for 25 years. <clears throat> and I intend to lose, I've done it before, I intend to get it off, but I, I fail. Because when I get there, I celebrate for the next several years, and I'm glad I got there, and then I find myself, you know, what I do, I wouldn't do, what I shouldn't do, I do, and, and here I am again, you know what I mean? So I intend, it looks good on the outside, but it's really hard to do. Sin, same way. If you can draw from that analogy, it's the same way. I intend not to sin, I intend not to do this, I intend not to think that, but in real life, we do. And we struggle with that. So the lost person really compounds what we go through. Because they don't have God. They don't have 1 John 1, 9. They don't have anything. They don't have God they can pray to and ask for forgiveness and cleanse my mind and my heart of this guilt. They don't have that. Why well, is person just going to pack it around with them? So, so Paul in this verse doesn't deny that the person trying to keep the law of Moses has the intention of doing right. But it says the power to will is there, but the ability, the power to do what he thinks he should do isn't there. Power's not there. Someone else has control over you. Paul's getting to that. So, so is Kurt in just a couple minutes here. So... I can apply this verse to Christians. I had a, heard a preacher one time say in verse number 18 that the old nature, we still struggle with that. The old nature didn't move out. He just moved over. New nature's there, old nature's there, or vice versa if you're left handed Anyways, he just moved over. He didn't move out. He's still there. We, we still battle with him. Our minds do. So we still struggle with that. So, it does apply to us too. But this misdefinition and taking will to mean something that Paul didn't really mean is how the saved person, the converted Christian, uh, got into this passage as a subject. They misunderstood what Paul was saying. And now all of a sudden he's talking about Christians. He's not. Talk about lost people. But you can apply anything in the Bible to us, to Christians. But he's speaking to this lost Jew. Same people he's been talking to. Remember back in verse number 1, this, this is speaking to those who, what? Know the law. But everybody else can listen to it and see it and learn from it. But I'm speaking to that person that's trying to do right and keep the law. So, Paul is saying that, and, and, and he doesn't deny that there's good will, good intentions. Even in the reprobate Gentiles, he said there's good there. Uh, remember back, uh, turn back to Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Paul didn't deny that there's some good people out there, even, even Gentiles. Romans 2, 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, or a law unto themselves. The Gentiles that don't even know the law do things that are morally correct and upstanding things 
They're keeping part of the law, but they don't, they're not under the law. They don't intend to. They're not doing it for justification, but they're just good people. So everybody intends to do right, but we can't. We can't sustain that. Amen. So Paul's using this language here referring to people under the law, even though it has an uh, application to Christians, uh, there's even conflict in our hearts, and our minds. We struggle with that. I bet the best Christians in the world, I bet these mighty giant, we can aim them from the past, struggled with that. They had to pray every day, constantly, because they had to struggle with that old nature. It was still there. Verse 19, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, guess what? That I do. This knowledge of what it means to be outside of Christ and under the law is revealed to us here. Uh, not from a standpoint of an intellectual lost person, but from the viewpoint of Paul, a great Christian who lived under that law and struggled under it, who has now become a mighty uh, apostle, and he still has to deal with it some. What did God give Paul to keep him humble? You think he liked that? Did he ever ask to get rid of it? Did God do it? No. So he still had to struggle. But Paul lived this. He lived under the law and he lived as a Christian. And he's got that experience where he can help others. That's what he's trying to do. Amen. This awful state of wretchedness and misery uh, must be ever present in a person that's lost. Before I was saved, um, I, I was raised agnostic. We didn't have a church. We didn't go to church. I was telling Brother Gary yesterday that I, I didn't know what that meant. You know, as a kid, we used to talk about religion to our friends. What religion are you? I'm this. Oh, what do you believe? And then I'm, I'm agnostic, and I don't know what I believe. I asked my mom, what do we believe? Because I had a, kind of a hunger and a thirst for that, you know, because everybody had a religion. If you don't have religion, man, you're, you're hurting back in my day. I mean, you got to know something. You had to do something. You had to be something, it seemed, in school. I don't know if you were that way when you were younger, but what religion are you? And, uh, you know, you got to talk about it. And my, my parents says, well, we, we can believe in God, but we don't, we don't believe in church. Because I used to look at a phone book under A, under churches. You find the Anglican you find the apostolic? Couldn't find that agnostic church there. <laughs> there just wasn't one there, you know. So I was raised that way, no knowledge, no exposure to the Bible or, or stuff, none, nothing, yeah. you know. Uh, so when I got back from Korea, though, I was really, really hungry. I don't know why. And the first person that would have got me would have got me. I mean, it could have been anybody. But luckily, it was a young lady that was a Christian that worked at McDonald's, and I ate there. My wife's going to be surprised at this. Every single night I ate there because I, I like McDonald's. Anyways, that was back when. But she invited me to church, and I went there, and she didn't show up. And I was all alone. You know, I was, I was there. And the guy behind me saw me gripping the pulpit during the invitation. And he, and I, I didn't, I told you, just, I told you before, people, people went up there, and I never saw them again. I don't know what happened to them up there. They got vaporized or raptured. But I didn't go up there, but this guy caught me after the church, Don Wakefield, and asked me and gave me the plan of salvation. He had a real burden for, for GIs, and he talked to me. And I got saved right there on that pew back in 
1975, and uh, boy. But I had a hunger, and whatever would have got me, would have got me. I wanted to latch on to something, and because this, this, this misery, this wretchedness of knowing that you can't get it right in your head, and you have these questions, but there's no answers to it. And as a lost person, I experienced that. And I think a lot of people did too. You're looking for something. Sometimes you don't even know you're looking for it, but you're looking for it because you're glad when you find it. Then you realize, oh, that's what I need. That's what I need. I didn't know I needed that. Didn't know it was out there until someone told me. So apart from Jesus Christ, there's no way that even the best-intentioned unsaved person can exist in any other state as what Paul's trying to describe here. This misery, this wretchedness, you don't know, you don't walk around, oh, I'm miserable or wretched, but you are inside. You can't control things that you want to control. You don't have an answer to things you want an answer to until you meet Jesus. So that, that's the description. People don't even realize they're in that condition. And it's difficult to tell them because they can always, you know, you're lost, you're undone, you're unsaved. Well, so-and-so's a Christian, and they do this. And then they go shopping for religions to let them do what they want to do. I don't want to give up smoking, so I'll find a religion that I can smoke. They do that down in hell a lot. They smoke. And um, uh, that's a smoking area down there. Or they do this. They want to drink. They want to do what they want to do, so they go shopping in this big smorgasbord of religions, and they find out what they want to do. But they're not getting saved. They're just appeasing their conscience a little bit. So, the picture of humanity unable to do what is approved and, and really desired to be done, they're unable to, at the same time they're condemned to this death sentence. So people are really looking for things, they don't know they're looking for it though, they want an answer. Who gives them the answer? The world does. You know what you need? Wait, you deserve. You gotta have. Get all the gusto you can get. Only have one life to live. So we're fulfilling our our empty spot in the world is what we're doing. I'm not preaching the morning message, I'm just saying that's what Paul's trying to tell these folks. There's something in you that you can't get fulfilled because you're working at it, but you don't know what you need. You don't know what you even need until you find Jesus. Amen. So they're unable to do these things that they want to do and end up doing the things that they don't like to do. They're unapproved. They're reprehensible. You know, they become reprobates. They become deplorables. Thank you, Hillary, for that word. They become people that people don't, don't desire to be around you or you don't want to even be by yourself because you don't like yourself. So this verse is not a statement of the way it is with Christians. That's why this isn't talking to, to save folks. It's talking about everybody except Christians. Christians don't go through this. We struggle with sin. We struggle with things. But we've got resources that a lot of folks don't have, and that's Jesus. And the reason we stay miserable is because, guess what? We don't go there. We don't ask, and we don't, you know, we don't wait on God. So, anyways, you don't have to preach today. I can just, just done minute to 
the whole morning message and stuff. We'll take an offering too pretty soon. <laughs> First, verse number 20, sorry. Verse number 20, now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, here we go, but sin that dwelleth in me. That term, the devil made me do it, isn't far from wrong. Sin is what makes us do what we do, what makes people do what they do. Now, it is no more I that do it, but sin. Humanity is helpless to live righteously until this sin problem is solved. This sin problem is solved. Until a man is saved, stands justified in Christ, this verse here is the death. I can't do what I need to do. Can't do it. I try to, can't do it. Don't want to, but I do it. I'm under the control of sin. That's what Paul's going to get here in just a couple, couple of football verses. We, we have certain moralities and good qualities. Everybody knows good people, but they're lost. I used to work with a lot of folks. They were lost. They made sure they didn't cuss around me or say, but, I, you know, but they're lost. Uh, slaves of sin until you're set free by Christ. Amen. So this verse is kind of softening it a little bit here, but... but Satan is in control of our lives until we are saved. Sin. He is the master. He does the sin, but who does he use? Us. You can see him working in this world. You can see him working in this world more than you have ever before. In this country, more than you ever before. Sin. God doesn't only have a plan. Guess who else does? Satan does, and his plan is part of God's plan. Things have got to happen, and they're starting to pick up the pace a little bit here, I've noticed. Really have. Our sinful condition, Jesus used to talk about them in the Gospels. What did he call the sinner, oftentimes, that knew better but didn't want to change? Called him a fool. The foolish builder back in Matthew chapter number 7. The foolish virgins back in Matthew 25. The fool whose soul was required of him that night, Luke 12. The foolish disciples that didn't believe in the prophets, Luke 24. Even the Old Testament, the denier of God is called a fool. Psalms 14.1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have, gone, they have done abominable works, there is none righteous, I mean there is none that do with good. Paul took that right out of that and put it into Romans. There's none that do with good. There's none righteous. No, not one. We heard that first in the Old Testament. It's not something new that Paul brought out. It's always been that way. So people know what to do. They know what they want to do. They want to know. They want to change. They want to, they want to be better, but they don't have the capability to do it. Try as they might, they can't do it. Until they receive Christ. Do we still sin? Do we still stumble and fall into sin? Yes. But we have a way to extricate ourselves from that. They don't. Lots of folks can't get out of it. We have a way to be forgiven. We still sinned. It might have affected somebody else. And there's provisions in the Bible for that. If you're not too full of pride, we can go to someone and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I sinned. But that's what we're commanded to do, isn't it? Okay. Verse 21. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Heard a preacher say, you need another, you need another lawyer. <laughs> you find a law that tells you to do evil. I find a law. Like I said, anyone who's tried to do good on their, their own, we can't do it. The law spoken of here which compels people to do evil is the rule of Satan. We underestimate or understate the power of Satan. You know, he's not the guy with the horns and the, the tail and the pitchfork anymore. He might be the person you're working for or working with or running our country or anything else. I mean, he's got power and he controls people. He's controlling the things that are happening here. And I suggest they're going to get worse. They're getting worse real fast. I mean, boy. Amen. All the things that they told us about, I don't know, back when we were in school, back in the 1800s, you know, way back when, when, uh, when we were in school, people were cautioning, you know, don't get rid of the Pledge of Allegiance. Don't get rid of the Bible. And it's evolved to where there's no allegiance to anything except themselves. Or they'll latch on to a philosophy or a party or whatever it is. That's what they give their allegiance to, not, not a country. There are people who grew up in school now hating America. Because they've been taught America's evil. And they believe it. And now they're in office. But they were warned. I don't know how I got off a nap. Anyways, the rule of Satan, that's how he's worked this thing out here. Satan is the master of sin. And when you're lost, he's the master within. He controls you. The knowledge of God's law can make you feel better, but it doesn't change your life unless you accept Christ. You have to do something with that sin problem. He can make you free. Nothing else can. The great force of evil in this world is personal. Satan is dealing with people. He's not, you know, he's using people to do what his will is. Using people. People that are usable. And who's usable? Those that aren't saved are usable. And he appeals to their quest for power or their quest for this or that or money or whatever. He appeals to that and he uses them and it affects everybody else. He's the master of that. So there's a power of evil in this world and he controls it. What? Why doesn't God stop it? He's going right. to read the end of the book. He does. How come he doesn't do it now? Because we ain't at the end of the book yet. We're getting there. Right. And from this power of sin, we can't get away from it if we're not saved. We're tied to it. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. There's a law... Turn back to um, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. We're still, still talking to the same people. Let me tell you who we're talking to here. We went through chapter 2 several months ago. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. This is who Paul's talking to. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. 
Here I am, Lord. And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And art confident that thou art thyself, that thyself art a guide to the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. That's who Paul's talking to in verse number and chapter number seven. Those folks that are legal Jews that are, you know, we've arrived. We've kept the law. We're keeping the law. We're guiding the others. I mean, we're important people. That's who he's talking to here. I know God's will. See them boast here? That's who Paul's dealing with. I know what's going on, but they don't. They don't understand what's happening. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Yeah, they delight into it, but they can't, they can't do anything with it. Oh, this is great. I know the law. What's it doing for you? Nothing. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into what? Captivity to the law of sin, which is where? In my members. This is an important verse. Another law in my members, that word warring, you see that, that, that term warring against the law of my mind, it is a war. If you've read the Bible and some other things, you've studied a little bit of history back of uh, this ancient warfare, it was pretty brutal. I mean, they didn't have artillery that could shoot 40 miles away and blow you away, but they had, it was brutal. It was hand to hand. It was terrible. Another law doesn't know Christ. He's trying to rely on himself. He's trying to obtain justification, but he can't free his conscience. He is rendered ineffective. Despite his best efforts, the power of sin becomes a law or a rule of conduct in his life. Warring talks about deploying an army, and then they surround it and they put it under siege. Read your Bible. Put it under siege, and then they destroy it with all kinds of things they got. Catapults, excavators. You know, who knows what they had, all kinds of things that they could construct out of wood and rock and whatever else. They would have these implements of destruction, these big machines, and they would destroy your city. And then they take you captive if you survive. Same thing happens in our mind. It's warring against the law of my mind. The soul is surrounded with evil. It's warfare. Satan wants in. He surrounds you with evil. All these great instruments. What are the instruments of Satan? Eyes. Pride. Flesh. Remember all those things? Pride of the flesh. Pride of You know, all those things that Satan uses in us. He captures us. And we can't fight back, we can't resist it, and we're taken by the enemy. That's the lost person. That's where we came from. The city falls, everybody's carried away captive, and we're made permanent slaves to the enemy until we can escape. And we escape through Christ. 
So this verse 23 is leading us to verses 24 and 25. There's victory in Christ. Without Christ, there's nothing but frustration, defeat, slavery, and death. Just like the seas around our mind, around our city. So Paul cries out here in verse number 24. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Question mark. He's asking a question. All these things that I've talked about for the last, you know, several verses is describing the unsaved person. And he says, O wretched man that I am. realizes it, that he's wretched. I'm undone. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The body of this death. The answer to that question is Jesus. People couldn't keep the law because Jesus hadn't come yet. They couldn't be justified by the law. They, They couldn't keep it. Lots of good, noble, fantastic people, but they all fell short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Try as they might, they couldn't attain, not obtain, couldn't attain process of justification. It's a losing battle. Hopelessness, despair, all this stuff we can think of is characteristic of Satan's reign on this earth. And then Jesus came. The body of this death. You know what that's talking about? The lost carry on this body of death. It's their self. It's their, their flesh. They carry this, this sinful package of sin with them. They carry it around with them. That's the body of this death. They're chained to this unsaved life that they had. And they can't get rid of it. Can't cut the chains. Jesus can. They're chained to their unsaved nature. And they can't get away from it. Try as they might. They're chained. That's what this is talking about, being chained to a dead body. And Jesus comes and cuts the chain. Sets us free from that. Cuts the chains that bind us to our former selves. To the slavery of sin. And after our conversion, after our salvation, the sins that we do, we don't put them in a backpack. We lay them at the feet of Jesus, and He forgives them. Sometimes we pick them back up again, and we shouldn't. But He forgives that, cleanses us. 1 John 1.9 isn't just a one-time thing. It's every day sometimes. We've got to use that all through our Christian life. I might give you one more verse here, I think, last, last verse. I thank God, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord is the answer to the question that Paul made about who's going to deliver me. If there had been no answer, there would have been no reason to thank God. But there's an answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. After all we've discussed here, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? I thank God. Amen. So the conclusion 
that we need to understand, this last verse, is still dealing with the same subject, same person. All that is said in this chapter here about the carnal man, you can say it applied to Saul. But it doesn't apply to Paul. You can't apply this part of the chapter to Paul. He doesn't struggle with this stuff. He doesn't. He can't say, you need to be saved. And people say, oh, your life's miserable. You struggle with all, why should I get saved? That's not the way it is. Paul said to Saul, I went through this. I know what it's like. I know exactly what you're going through. Been there. Got the t-shirt. Got the mega hat. Or the make me a better Christian hat or whatever it is, make me saved again. Or, you know, I got that hat. There'll be mega hats in museums someday. Many, many years from now, you guys will have grandkids. You say, what's this, Dad? Mac Red MAGA hat. What does that mean? Well, son, way back when. Yeah, yeah and you'll tell the story. So it's essential to understand that this section of verse number, or chapter 7 is talking about the unsafe person struggling with their self-abilities, their inward abilities, trying on their flesh to attain, not obtain. We obtain. That's that. Attaining takes a while. It's a work in progress. Salvation is not a work in progress. Right. Sanctification is a work in progress. Right. Now that you're saved, you're not a super Christian. You've got to grow. How do you grow? You don't like the way you grow. Trials. Right. Tribulations. It helps you grow. Why can't I just get the I'm saved and have all these benefits now option? You can't get that. You've got to go through it. All of us do. All of us are. Right. And it's the going through it that other chapters are talking about later on here. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the day, Lord. Pray, God, you'd bring visitors to church, Father. Pray, God, you'd uh, bless pastors, you preachers, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.